Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. If you love the Intelligence Squared podcast, you can support the show and help us do what we do by hitting subscribe via Apple Podcasts. And in return, you'll get bonus content, ad-free listening, and early episodes too. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Coming up on the podcast, how can we use culture, craft, and creativity to address historical injustices of the past and map out the path for a sustainable future? We'll be hearing from a panel of experts discussing it all at the Radical Acts Biennial, an initiative from Harewood House. The Radical Acts Biennial is an exhibition exploring the power of craft to create positive change. It's currently taking place at Harewood House, an 18th century country estate in Yorkshire in the UK. Harewood House has been a charitable trust since 1986 and the house was built between 1759 and 1771 on ground bought by Henry Lascelles, a wealthy plantation and slave owner using money gained from the West's Indian sugar trade. Working with the trust, recent generations of the Lascelles family have been at the forefront of acknowledging Harewood's role in colonialism and are committed to being open and honest about the wealth it derived from the transatlantic slave trade. Harewood House is now seeking to use its platform to encourage conversations about some of the most urgent issues of our time, racial injustice, the climate emergency and health and well-being. The Trust has been a long-standing advocate for the power of the arts and the Radical Acts Biennial offers a unique opportunity to connect the dots between art and social change. Today's talk is hosted by the journalist and author of Africa is Not a Country, Dipo Faloyan, and explores how creatives of colour are using their craft to challenge colonial narratives, help heal the wounds of racial injustice and transform our relationship with the environment. Let's hear from Dipo now. Good evening. This event, Reclaiming the Earth, produced in partnership with Intelligence Squared, will be unpacking questions such as, what stories do the objects we make tell us about ourselves? What impact has colonialism had on the relationship between people of colour and the natural world? And what role does craft play in our communities? Now we're here in these beautiful surroundings with three brilliant speakers to explore these expansive themes. And it's my absolute privilege to introduce them to you now. We have Claire Rattelin, who is an organic food grower and writer based in East Sussex. Her latest book is Unearthed on race and roots and how the soil taught me I belong was released this month by Chateau and Windus. So it's very much hot off the press. We have Lagaya Salazar, an independent curator with an interdisciplinary practice focused on the intersection of design, fashion, art, and graphics. She recently curated Craft Council's Gaining Ground exhibition and is completing a Stanley Picker Research Fellowship on Tropical Futures. And finally, Spandau Gopal, creative director of Tipwa, a product design studio based in Bangalore and London. She grew up in India and moved to London to study fine art at Central St. Martins before stepping out to launch her own business. Can we all please welcome our panel? And now we can begin. And so the first question I'm gonna ask is for all three speakers. And it is, why is craft a political subject? And I think we will start with Spendon. Hi everyone, it's very nice to be here. So I run a product design studio called Tipoi that I set up um, maybe about seven years ago. So I guess for me this is a very relevant question because obviously I work in two very different contexts of being here in London and then also 
having set up a crafts-based workshop in Bangalore, which is actually in an industrial area of the city. So I think for me, I definitely tell a very different story of how, what the crafted object can be and the context in which it's made. And when you think about a maker in the kind of Western sense versus, you know, a craftsperson in India, they're two very, very different things. And in India, we have, obviously, we have the caste system. And, um, you know, you're born into a kind of identity, caste identity, and then that's kind of entrenched with, you know, your occupation. So, for example, you're born into being, you know, a family of potters, for example. And then very much it's trying to create a life by escaping your reality, which is sometimes a very hard one, you know. And, you know, so I often come against this, this problem of, you know, things like, you know, conservation and, you know, this idea of like, should we, how do we save this craft? You know, how do we kind of uh, make sure it's, it's the same and it never changes, you know, which is mainly, I think, a problem we have because we impose our own nostalgia um, and a kind of imagination around a certain time and place. And I think those, those things most often don't exist. So I think, you know, for me, I feel like I address this a lot in my work where I think it's a very fine balance about thinking about how a craft can evolve so the person making feels like he's consciously um, they're, you know, they're making or kind of honing his craft for a reason as opposed to being kind of bonded to it for life and not being able to, to leave his occupation. So I, I think that for me that's where it becomes political, working with craft in an Indian context. Without the same question. Very, very difficult question, but also I think a very easy question to answer. I think craft in, in the context of um, of what I've been working on, I should say I'm not a craft curator at all. I, I'm a design curator mostly, but I, I did an exhibition for the Crafts Council on, on uh, an initiative by the British Council, which was called Crafting Futures, and is very much um, in the vein of um, preserving craft traditions in, in various places around the world. And, uh, and the difficulties that arise from trying to um, preserve it in, in a way that um, is maybe what was remembered by archives, et cetera, uh, and museums. So um, I, I, I hear your, um, what you mean about um, the difficulty between what craft means here and what craft, craft means in maybe the global south. Um, and I guess craft here, uh, in a kind of more Western global North context is can be an act of resistance in the sense that it, it resists the pace of late capitalism. It, it takes time. It, you know, it is something that is, is perhaps uh, something that we don't value as much, but if you take time to do it, it means that you're resisting, um, you know, other other ways of consuming. I've done a lot of shows on uh, on fashion, for example, which is obviously the, the, the exact opposite, but also very much in in engaged with craft practices. So, um, I think in in its most simple form, it's an act of resistance in the context of the global north. But in, in the context of the global south, it is something totally different, but also political in other ways because it has been affected by. Um, political acts over centuries. Okay. Um, it's, it's a great question and it's a kind of a, a complicated one for me because I'm still dancing with the idea that what I do is could be considered craft, you know, because um, I'm a food grower and, um, and most of the time that I've been growing food has been in, it's, it's, it's to feed people, you know, I wasn't doing it in order to have conversations like this, although I'm really glad that these are, these are taking place now. Um, but I do think that the act of growing food um, is, in, is inherently political, especially when it's done in spaces where it is not necessarily um, welcome or it's not necessarily seen in a, um, in a kind of ordinary sense. And, and, I, and to contextualize that, what I mean is, when I started growing, I was growing in cities and I was growing in these kind of small, somewhat implausible spaces. And, and there was something inherently radical about 
and inherently political about growing food into land which would otherwise have been co-opted by um, people who wanted to you know, build houses on, on these spaces and, and, and you know, co-opt it into wealth accumulation effectively. And, and so I think there is something um, radical about doing something that is so invisibilized and is so denigrated in, in a kind of social sense. You know, we don't uphold our food producers as I think we ought to. And so to, to kind of centralize that as um, something worthwhile and, and worthy of reverence, I think is an incredible thing to do because it's something that socially it doesn't doesn't happen we don't think often about where our food comes from and we don't necessarily engage in interrogations of of like what it takes to bring the food to our table and so yeah i think there that um for, to even just learn what it takes to grow our food and then re-embed ourselves in an understanding of what it takes to sustain us is something that is inherently political yeah absolutely uh let's stick with that idea claire mm. about sort of land and history yeah. um you look around us and we're in this incredible space mm. um, that has a very deep colonial history. You know, yes. Henry Lascelles and then his son uh, Edwin were both plantation and slave owners. Mm -hmm. um, and so of course this space is linked to both exploitation of people um, as well as land. Mm. Um, and in your book you talk about, in your book. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, you explore your own family's history in Mauritius uh, through your own personal journey and, you know, how that led you to where you are today. Mm. How did, what sort of started you down the path of, of growing food? Mm. Well, I mean, I didn't start, I didn't set out to, to be on this particular quite peculiar journey. When I started growing food, I was actually living in New York and working as a documentary producer. And I came across this rooftop farm in, in right in the middle of the city and was just captivated with what was happening there. And, and then I just, wanted to embed myself further and further into understanding and learning this act of growing food because it just I was so taken aback by the fact that I had never really thought about where my food came from and I didn't know what it took to grow, to grow the food that we eat um, and so spent a huge amount of time as much as I possibly could volunteering there and that's what brought me back to London and and um, and I kind of set about retraining and that was in 2015 and so it was very much happening under the um, under the kind of what I would describe as dark clouds of the conversations around the EU and around what would then lead up to the Brexit referendum. And, and so I was doing this thing that I was really like excited about and energized by, you know, it was growing food, but in, into land that I felt had always been ambivalent about my presence on it. And, and now these conversations were kind of bringing up these, these dialogues of unbelonging that I'd, that I'd carried for such a long time. I mean, I really did carry them all the way to New York and brought them back to, mm -hmm. to London. And, and, um, and so I think that, those things happening at the same time, you know, this burgeoning passion for growing food and this kind of, yeah, resurgence of, of feeling rejected by the land of where I was born kind of coalesced into uh, an interrogation that I felt I couldn't resist in, in, in that I felt compelled to, to figure out what it meant to, to grow food, what it meant to, to grow food in a land that, that I've never felt welcome in and to grow food as somebody who is a descendant of, of the enslaved and the indentured, you know? And, and, and I think I, I, it, it led to a realization that I really didn't understand or know the, the history of the island that I came, you know, my family come from the island of my ancestry. And Mauritius is a very particular and peculiar story in that, you know, if you are to believe the history books, it was uninhabited when it was discovered um, by Europeans and, and has changed hands in a number of ways and, and has stolen people and enslaved people and endangered people. And, and that is what creates, that, that is what makes up the vast majority of the populace to this day. And so it really is an island that is made up of, uh, it, it was magicked into being through colonialism and imperialism and, and, and oppression and, and, you know, all of these forces. And so for me, you know, having to kind of start in investigating that and coming to understand that, coming to understand why I didn't know it and why that, you know, that the fact that that history had been so erased within my own family was something that, that um, I felt led to by the work of food growing. And, and, and I find that there's, there's just so much overlap between the stories that brought my ancestors to that island and you know, and, and doing the work that I was then sort of re-embedding myself and, and, and into doing and, and reclaiming effectively that, that 
you know, they're, they're, they're these strands that mirror each other. And so I felt that I felt compelled to at least like look at what that what that meant. And and, and I'll arguably ask myself the question whether I should be growing food at all. Like, was this an act of reclamation or was I returning back to the, you know, this site of, of the most grotesque of crimes? Is that a question that you find yourself asking yourself still up until now? You know, Ooh. should I be doing this at all? You speak and you spoke in the past about how working the land is very complex. Mm. Yeah, uh, thing for you, you know, considering your heritage and considering, um, you know, the fact that you know enslavement and indentured labour, slavery, is there in your in your family's past. Mm. You know, how do you reckon with that every day? Um, do you I still think, reckon with that every day? I think, well, acting is uh, acting. Sorry, growing food is a very active process, yeah. and it's a very active act, and so it's something that is, you know, you are in an ongoing cycle of cultivation on you and so it is something that I dance with regularly but I think I have come to a point and and it is reflected in my book that um that this was the <laughs> he's doing a really great job of promoting my book um thank you very much um that you know we we, we existed as, as stewards of the land before we were stolen and moved and our identities were erased and we were you know we, we, we existed as people who, who grew food in dignity and grew food in community and, and took care of each other through the food that, through the plants that we grew for one another and we understood the land and and that sense of disconnection that i had for the longest time is not my heritage my heritage is something much more profound than that and so i think through growing food i've found a sense of reclamation that i think is has integrity and is very true but it is something that i that i do cultivate and i have to grow because it's yeah it, it, it can disappear and it can you know it's 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 tricky it's whatever this movement is yeah. <laughs> it's tricky and so you know and and in in the research part of the of writing the book you know is trying to find these kind of hidden histories and you know looking into Mauritian history which is actually really hard to find it there's not a lot of it and and most of it is incredibly painful and so there were times even just during the writing of the book where I was you know it's quite deep into my food growing practice at that point where I, I did pull back and really question it so I do think it's one of those things that I will always dance with but I do believe that it is a reclamation to, to take to step into that role to step into the role of land steward yeah and you think more and more as the industry becomes more diverse, you know, mm. do you think that conversation will become broader or do you think on an individual level it'll be easier for people to, to have? Mm, that's a good question. I mean, I wish, I wish I knew. I wish I could. I mean, I can definitely see there's a lot of movement within, within the kind of horticulture and agriculture section, uh, sectors to, to interrogate the histories that, that created our horticultural and agricultural landscapes and, and to, to be in dialogue with what that means in an ongoing way. I mean, it will invariably it will lead you to questions about land justice and land you know, distribution and who gets to work the land, who gets to own land or who gets to have a say about what that, what that land is used for. Um, so I do think those conversations are happening, but you know, we are sitting in the context of somewhere that is like incredibly opulent and enormous amounts of land here and I'm, I'm, I'm not sure whether there's any plans to start redistributing that so there's lots of like you know market gardens here or, or whatever somebody would want to use that land for so I do think there's a huge way to go before we can actually look at how the you know long-standing injustices can be addressed and I think that's what needs to happen in order for it to be more equitable land equitable landscape the uh, guy let me bring you in here the the Craft Council's Gaining Ground exhibition explored craft as a form of kind of living knowledge. Um, what theme sort of came out of that exhibition for you? Well, I think the, the themes I drew, drew out of what were originally about 100 projects and nine projects were then in the exhibition were really about um, this idea of there's a, there was a lot of overlapping themes, but the, the, the ideas of ethics and IP when it comes to craft practices, especially in the global south. Um, then there's definitely uh, the, the kind of disruption of colonialism and capitalism that happened in, in a lot of places that is being, you know, trying to be addressed through some of these projects. And, um, and the role of kind of, I guess, f uh, females in craft practice. So those are the kind of the main themes that came through there. And you, I mean, it's, 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 quite, it's quite broad spectrum of, of practices that were, were shown in this exhibition from, from kind of earth building, li lime stabilizing earth to make, 
you know, make buildings more resistant to, or earth-built buildings more resistant to climate change or more storms, to, um, you know, hand-woven um, textiles in the Philippines. So it's, it was a very broad spectrum of craft practices, but I think what, what was very clear is the idea of craft as a, as a, as a means to make a living, but also what that means to showcase that in, in a way. So a lot of the projects were archiving and library projects that were online. So they're still grappling with how to show that online without giving everything away. So there's, there's a lot of very complicated subject areas that came through. And a lot of, I think your work in the past has shed a light on a lot of the sort of the craft traditions that have been lost to colonialism. Mm. Um, can you kind of give us an, an example of one? Um, oh God, there's so many, but yeah, I guess, I guess there's, 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 there's two, two, two main aspects in, in the as exhibition in the sense that they're, 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 they're practices that have lost um, or have been disrupted by capitalism. For example, the, uh, the weaving practices in the north of the Philippines, which, which went from uh, being small looms that you have in your house to big looms and within that, um, losing those small looms, you lose the patterns that are inherent in it. So, and then the looms were then archived and uh, acquired by lots of museums across the globe, so they weren't accessible anymore. Um, but what was also it was also problematic about the, the kind of scaling up of of, of that uh, of that practice was that at the same time there was a change in crop. So rice was previously farmed, now it was corn and tobacco. So they lost, um, lost a lot of the natural dyes that were present in the, in the, in the kind of rice growing process. So there's, there's multiple layers of disruption that happened over you know, the course of a couple of hundred, hundreds of years. And now um, it's, it's so hard to even get cotton because all the cotton gets exported to, to China. So there's, there's so many layers of, of disruption that happen that you kind of, as to your point, it's like, how do you even return to something that was, you know, the past or that's the ideal craft practice? Or is it more useful to, to try and look at adapting it and finding new ways of, 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 of making? in a way, so. In that attempt to uh, try and find new ways, do you find that people are trying to reconnect to those old traditions or is it more of a, let's just look to the future and see what we can do? I think it's a lot of like, let's try and survive uh, in most places. I think um, a lot of the initiatives that, that were shown in, in, the, in the exhibition are threatened by political change. Um, Nicaragua, for example, um, that was the earth building um, project. They, they closed the, the charity, the NGO, because no NGOs can operate anymore. So there's a lot of, you know, this, it's really about survival in many, many, many places. So it's not really about looking for innovation. It's more about trying to find a way of making it, um, making it work. And what impact do you think kind of bringing these stories to light and having people kind of understand um, you know, what has happened, you know, how can that have an impact on these, in these Arab communities, or can they? I think it's very complicated because I think the, uh, the funding comes in dribs and drabs, honestly, and I think it never is a continuous stream of like investment and training and, and you know, you know, building of, of businesses, it, it comes and then it's, you know, then it's gone again, or very often it's residency projects where people come and like learn or teach each other and then it's only for six months and then they're so gone again. So sort of sustainability and the idea. Well, there's, there's no continuity, there's no right? So, and it's, or it's very hard to, to, to build that continuity. So uh, I, I am in two minds about it. There's a couple of projects that, uh, that were funded that are, more like, um, I guess, like library project and that were initiated by, by some of the groups themselves, where I feel like maybe the, the kind of visibility will bring, bring some sort of, um, you know, awareness of the situation at least. But it, it is a very complicated yeah, I can imagine. trajectory. And then sort of after, what comes after sort of survival mode, if things, you know, do improve, then are these communities better able to then return to these practices and then tell, you know, better stories of, of their traditions or 
Well, and often, and often, I think I should, I should, I should tell the story of when the uh, this this particular um, tribe in, in northern Philippines came to see the some of the some of the textiles that had been archived in in a local museum, and they were horrified by the fact that they were not living living pieces of, of fabric anymore. Mm. And quite often those those fabrics were also used for funeral practices. So it, it the, the museum in its own right and archives in their own right are very complicated places for, for craft practices, I think, generally speaking. So um, I don't know. I, I don't know where the, where the future is for so many different types of projects because they're so locally specific and the, the complications of socioeconomic and political um, environments are very different. So um, some of them will continue and some of them might never re reconnect. Yeah. Uh, Spendana, let me bring you in here um, because you launched your brand with an anti-nostalgia mission. Yeah. Um, I've heard rumors that there's more to Indian design than just sticking elephants on things. Um, and that sort of Indian culture is far broader than, than yoga. Um, tell me more about that. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I just feel, I just felt agitated. Yeah, obviously this, this kind of stuff agitated me, which is what propelled me to, to start Teapoy, really. Um, because I, I just think that, um, there, there is this, yeah, the, the reason I occupy this anti-nostalgia position is because um, I don't think there's, you know, you've mentioned the word innovation, mm -hmm. and I think with innovation comes value. So if, I feel like if something is kind of entrenched in no nostalgia, um, which a lot of brands tap into, you know, there's lots of Indian brands tapping into nostalgia of like, craft editions that are being lost, you know. So there is this idea of like, let's conserve, let's save, let's preserve, you know. And which is why, you know, tourism in India or even, you know, it's, it's this idea of escapism to being or going elsewhere. But like, so for me, that's, you know, I, I just, yeah, I was just a bit bored, you know, that there is, there is much more to talk about, or when are we going to stop talking about this? You know, it's just, you know, what? How are we adding value to, to what we're doing? Um, and for me, particularly, I was just interested in kind of the objects of daily life or this kind of lived Indianness. Uh, and for me, growing up in Bangalore, which is quite a, you know, modern urban city, um, I just felt when I moved to the UK when I was 18, I just didn't see. I, I just felt like stuck in a, you know, that had gone gone back, even though I didn't know where back was, you know. So I just found it very confusing, and I just felt like I wanted to talk about something else, you know. So I remember walking past Muji, and I was like, you know, this, I feel like, you know, what Muji does with Japanese design in terms of like, okay, they're a big corporation, but like they, they kind of brought a kind of life, like a lifestyle to the high street, which was, which was quite universal in a way. And then they kind of, I feel like Japanese design has its place in the world, which is, you know, it, it has certain kind of value system. And I just felt that there was something to be said about India's value system and the kind of everyday life because you know we don't have you know we don't have a design we don't have design institutions we have NID which is a kind of Nehruvian uh, post-independence project um, but then you know but we do have kind of people um, designing in everyday life you know I feel like things like frugality and, you know, just finding solutions to everyday problems, the way that objects are, you know, designed and then made, there is no designer, you know, it's just a manufacturer deciding what to change based on the feedback he gets from the auntie who comes into the shop and is like, I don't like this, it's too expensive, you know, and he, he kind of does neither another iteration. So there's this process of natural selection and evolution of kind of design in the everyday, which I was, I was like, you know, we should talk about this. So everything from your stainless steel 
cups and plates and you know um, you know just like the tiffin the you know the the tiffin carrier for instance or like even the terracotta chai coolards which is you know that that design system is amazing because um, essentially it's a for everyone who doesn't know what that is it's like when you drink chai on the street in India there's um, you, know, you drink it out of these kind of terracotta cups which are unglazed so you drink the chai and then after you drink it, you kind of smash the cup on the floor. And then that clay is then recycled into making cups again. And no one's calling this a sustainable project. You know, it doesn't have like a certification or anything. It's just ingrained into living because that is the best way to design something. That's a very long answer to what you asked me, but yeah. Sorry if I was rambling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What are the sort of, I mean, you, you mentioned that you came to the UK and you, you didn't see yourself represented, your identity represented yeah. here. You know, that along with kind of what are the main sort of downsides of having, um, I guess, Indian communities being treated like a monolith? Apart from that sort of personal frustration, you know, what are the kind of the, the negative effects of that? Yeah, I think that's a very interesting question because I feel that I, um, you know, I, I didn't really feel a connection with the, with the kind of diasporic communities, uh, the British South Asian communities, because they've obviously come to England in a very different way to I have, where I kind of came to, you know, go to university here. So I, I do feel that you do kind of get, you know, it gets confusing even for yourself, because it's like, suddenly I'm, you know, who, who, am, who am I question? Uh, because I feel like India is thinking and kind of preoccupied about something else, you know. I feel here it's very much about, there is a, you know, I've lived here for 18 years now, so it's, you know, I understand the conversation around decolonizing. But I feel like in India, the, you know, the British left the imagina uh, imagination like ages ago, like no one remembers, you know, they just left, you know. So it's, it's a completely different um, conversation, especially now in the current political climate, um, which is very interesting because, you know, I feel with our, if I can say, I don't know, um, yeah, we are, we think that the Mughals were colonizers more than, you know, the, the empire. So I just, I just feel that it's very different. So to again, get um, everyone is in the same boat is not the situation. And I think it's, um, yeah, I think it's very problematic also because I, yeah, because we're all different. Would you like to support Intelligence Squared in what we do? Well, just hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts and you can listen to Intelligence Squared ad-free, enjoy exclusive bonus content and get weekly episodes in advance too. Hit subscribe and we'll see you on the other side. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation 
of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool and I love the dance piece Sutra inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks and we've got a special treat for our listeners Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents that's right three months for only 99 cents with the code squared simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with Marquee TV This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. And, you know, with your work, is, is there a difference in the way your products um, are received in, you know, Bangalore versus, you know, here in the UK? Yeah. Um, weirdly, I don't sell anything in India <laughs> because I just feel that I, um, you know, I feel I'm going to be competing with the world's best shops and you know, I can't compete with the stainless steel thali plate, you know, that is sold. And there's nothing to add to that design. You know, it's perfect as it is. And I feel that maybe I, my kind of project is over here where I need to kind of create something new, uh, which, is, which is how I connect to diasporic communities in the UK, because in a way that, uh, you know, we're having a conversation because they kind of connect with an idea home through my uh, through my products, you know. So it's quite it's quite it's something that I didn't expect would happen. But um, yeah, I think most Indians find my product very expensive. So <laughs> they just they just don't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, the guy. Just wanted to come back to you a second on sort of something that you talked about. I think briefly earlier, um, and I know you've kind of. It's been part of your research, this idea of who gets the credit um, for you know, finding solutions to things like climate change, for example, mm-hmm. um, you know, when, it, when it's from the West sort of considered an innovation. Um, when it sort of comes from you know, what we might call the global South, it's sort of seen as like a return to traditional practices. Um, so kind of the, the West is framed as being you know, future facing, you know, while everyone else is constantly being portrayed as, oh, they're going back um, to their practices. Um, How are you sort of challenging this in in, in your work and and sort of what have you discovered from your work in, in, in this? in this field. Yeah, it's, it's how I started my research project, Tropical Futures, um, for the Stanley Picker um, Gallery, is, is, is that um, discomfort I've been feeling for a long time with the word innovation in the context of sustainable materials that are based on traditional uh, practices quite often. Um, in particular, I probably shouldn't name names, so, but in particular, one that is to do with um, pineapple fiber, which is something that's very um, traditionally used in the Philippines for kind of all sorts of different types of dress, but also other um, other occasions. But yeah, I guess I, it is, there's, there's, a, there's a complication. I think it relates a little bit to what you, you're calling nostalgia in, in that um, the Global South is always seen as, still seen as this, you know, place where all the past still exists and is still practiced, but it's it's never seen as the, the place where innovation mm-hmm. takes place. Um, and I, I, I liked, uh, I, I recently met with, with an artist that I'm, uh, I'm, I'm working with and he, his, um, his thesis is around heat, which I think is quite interesting. And this idea that, you know, this, I think he stumbled across the, or he always stumbled across the saying, oh, it's too hot for me to think properly. So, and I, I, he connects that with the idea of the tropics and or so anywhere that where it's hot and, you know, kind of the global south being a kind of good example of that. He, his research is mainly in the tropics, but 
Um, I, I like I like that notion, or I dislike that notion of you know connecting heat and not being able to think, and you know past practices with you know not being able to innovate. And you know as as you say in in India, every day, and it's not just in India, in lots of places, everyday innovations are you know just quite commonplace, and they're not then they're maybe not celebrated as innovations, but they are they're just uh, solutions to everyday problems mm -hmm. effectively. So, but yeah, I think that's that's something that continues to come up in my uh, in, in my research. But um, I also find still quite hard to grapple with and I'm not quite sure how how to unpick it in mm. a way. Yeah, I, it's sort of something that seems to come up in a lot of different industries. This some industries will sort of call it the sort of the white savior narrative of mm. coming in and believing that um, that you know that they're, they're the first to do something, mm. and then that is uh, that's innovative. Whether where uh, locally there are no answers anywhere else, um, mm. is that clear for you as well? Is that something that you found in sort of the language around food growing, mm. uh, depending on kind of where you know maybe a new practice comes in or mm. or traditional uh, you know products and ingredients and in, in season? Like, do you mm. find that there's a sort of a political language around the way we talk about? Uh, where our food comes from and mm. i mean when i was listening to to both of you speak the thing that kept coming to my mind was was when you if we broadened it out to look at kind of environmentalism and, and and the way in which we kind of interact with the natural world there is a lot of conversations that are talking about how um colonialism and, and, and other, other forces capitalism too have kind of disrupted indigenous practices and indigenous stewarding of land and and you know if you if you look back to you know settler colonial states particularly the, the the kind of the disruption that are that you can you can pretty much trace the the kind of inception of, of the climate crisis to these disruptions of of people being moved off land or their you know indigenous genocide and then also the kind of either the co-opting of indigenous practices or the erasure of indigenous practices and thus people and so there is there is a lot of mirroring um, in 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 what you've been sharing in in the kind of world of like what do we do now in the context of the climate and that does definitely connect to food and and like one of the one of the reasons why I went on the journey that I did to kind of interrogate what, whether I whether it was right for me to, to participate in this in this sector in this in this work was just not seeing anybody who looked like me doing it and not not having anybody who was being upheld as, as an expert who looked anything other than honestly sort of middle-aged to older elder white male and um you know and women feed the world like the the vast majority of people who produce the food that feeds us all is are, are women and they are they are experts in what they do and yet there is there is a, a you know it is a, it is a cultural appropriation of sorts that sees the you know, certain practices being kind of taken by by and historically too but take, you know kind of taken by practitioners and, and then kind of resold I mean permaculture is a perfect example of that permaculture is a kind of um, and, and, and you know, in many ways, it's, it's a really useful kind of framework for understand, you know, for, for planning a project or understanding how to grow within with kind of uh, a sensitivity to your to your the surrounding ecosystem. But if you kind of, it's not it's not an age old practice that has been handed down over generations. It is well, it is, but it's just been taken and 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 rebranded and and resold to people as as though it is brand new when it actually is founded in indigenous practices. And so, so it's really interesting to think about nostalgia in that sense because um, I think there is a lot of nostalgia in, particularly when you're in kind of regenerative and um, sustainable kind of agriculture circles. We, we're talking about like what what does it take to heal the land? What does it take for us to be in in good relationship with um, in right relationship with the land? And like what will it take for us to address the climate crisis? And a lot of that is looking back to the indigenous practices that have been erased you know distorted disrupted and and co-opted and and figuring out how we can actually listen to the people who have been in right relationship this entire time and um and so yeah so it's interesting to kind of look at that in the kind of framework of innovation because i would argue that that, that is future thinking if but we are but there is a you know time is a construct isn't it but it's 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 <laughs> but it's the sankofa it's the you know it's the the the, the holding in, in the past and in the future this idea that those things don't aren't disconnected and then, and so i do think we have a lot to to learn from indigenous practices and that doesn't necessarily mean that we're trying to reverse time you know because i think 
there's you know there's a lot of conversations about especially now with the kind of changing um, agricultural policy in this country you know what is it like people are now the money is going to be redistributed to, redistributed to those who rewild or plant trees and and that has huge colonial connotations you know there's a lot of um, the, the languaging around that and the the, the the way that that is being conceived is often about moving people again moving people off land and creating these kind of idealized landscapes of like pristine nature as though human beings aren't in relationship to the natural world aren't in relationship to land and shouldn't be there you know and the only way that we can save us is for us to be taken out of it and it be left to nature and actually I would argue that that's actually really problematic because we are part and parcel of that relationship and and so yeah so it's, it's an interesting there's, an, there's a slightly more um, complicated relationship with nostalgia because there's for me I'm definitely somebody who's like does resist innovation in the agricultural sector because that often means you know chemicals or you know tech to the point of being like destructive um, and so I'm looking to like kind of agric agricultural practices that have been practices practiced for centuries and centuries and centuries um, for, for the answers but then whilst simultaneously resisting some of the the con conceptions that um, that we can you know that nostalgia can sometimes introduce into these conversations introduce into the, the you know the solutions that we're trying to to figure out um, as a way of addressing the climate crisis and w what will in no distant future be a food crisis eventually what a lot of this nostalgia I think you've all sort of said um, is that it, it sort of introduces this idea of kind of sing, simple narratives mm -hmm. and singular simple narratives and um, that people kind of that just get passed on from generation to generation. Um, and, you know, through all your works, you've all tried to kind of push back and, and uh, tell a different story, a more complicated story. Um, what sort of tactics have you used? Like how difficult do you find that, you know, Spinano, when you try and, you know, explain that there is far more varied um, palette of designs that can represent um, India, you know, how, how do people sort of respond to that or, um, you know, or do you, or do you try and look well, past their response and just, just yeah. get on with your own personal work? Well, you asked me if I employ children, so I say, do you employ children? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just all sorts of ridiculous questions because it's like, um, you know, I try and not um, kind of manipulate my photographs on Instagram, for instance. And, you know, if, if I'm in the workshop in Bangalore, I'm just posting photos on my story. So it's like, you know, people who I work with are more comfortable sitting on the floor and doing something, you know, and it's it's just natural, you know, and then most likely they'll take their shoes off, you know, and most likely, you know, even though I've given them 50,000 set pairs of gloves and goggles, they will never wear them ever, you know, so it's just, but then I just say, I just tell it like it is, you know, because it's like, why, why should I, you know, what, what do I have to hide? So those conversations become quite interesting on Instagram, right? Because then there's a kind of now community policing of like, you know, how much does this person get paid, you know? But you're just asking that from someone so removed from a kind of context that you feel that you have the authority to ask that question without actually knowing anything about how I work or who I employ, you know, or what their families are like or like where their kids go to school or like any of this stuff, you know. So I just, sometimes my regular working day is like literally like doling out sums of cash, you know, to like people I work with because someone has to pay off a bank loans, someone's relative has passed away, someone's in hospital, you know, someone's like, so sometimes I find it really hard to translate any of that, you know, and so I just don't say anything, you know, I just leave it. And then on the other hand, on the other side, it's like a customer's being like, where's my order, which is fine. But sometimes I just find it hard to um, navigate the two contexts because they're so vastly different, you know. Um, but what was your question? <laughs> you did, you did answer it. Yeah. it was more just kind of like, how do you handle, um, you know, pushing back against these simple narratives? And, yeah. you know, yeah. I'll open up to you know, yes. the rest so, of the panel. Yeah, so, so I guess the, the reason I was saying all that is, you know, you'd, because textiles are a big part of India, you know, and I feel like it's a very established industry. Um, and then, you know, textiles, 
are still produced very much like what you were saying, like on small looms, decentralized, you know, fashion is amazing in India, you know, but I feel like the product story, uh, which is like more like, you know, small, dark, dingy workshops, you know, no one wants to go in there. No one wants to take photos of those places. So in a way, I feel like I've just given myself that job of doing that. And they really are in stark contrast to like beautiful textile stories of like block prints and cutch and like indigo dyed fabric and people working in very idyllic villages. So I guess the way I'm resisting that narrative is being like, you know, there are makers, these are craftspeople I work with, except that we are working in a city and this is what the city looks like, this is what a factory looks like, this is what an industrial area looks like, you know, this is what a scrap metal workshop looks like. So it's like the, the images are, are very different, you know, they're, they're almost the opposite of what you think um, a crafted object is, yeah. Uh, before I turn to the audience, uh, Claire, Levi, do you have any kind of tips, tricks, and sort of pushing back against these? Um, I think my, I mean, my my medium is an exhibition, right? So yeah. it's 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 not um, uh, images as such. But I guess what I did in in, in gaining ground is is to try and um, disrupt. What's interesting about the Cross Council space is that it's a new gallery space and it has a library in it that's very beautiful and like very well designed. Um, and what I wanted to do is create a space that isn't um, isn't like a gallery space in the sense that it, it feels more comfortable, it feels less like uh, intimidating. And I think that's something that I've been fighting all my career is to try and make places feel more um, accessible and with gaining ground what it, what I did is actually um, in the central space uh, it's is all matted and you have to take your shoes off to sit down and read the book so which kind of cre creates an informality which is something that I am keen on in in spaces that are to do with learning um, rather than this you know as as much as I've uh, I've studied in many grand libraries and I love that but I think making making spaces more um, familiar familiar I think is what I'm trying to do mm. um, I suppose uh, you know now, now that kind of my work has moved into writing I think that by kind of sharing my particular peculiar story I think that I'm what I'm just trying to at least open the window to is to say that the, that it's a, that narratives are never simple and 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 we all carry so many complicated narratives that we even if we don't necessarily know them because I can't find my own family's history um, at least engaging in the thought experiment of what it could possibly be at least complicates the the complicates the possibilities right and so I think and, and then I think once you've kind of engaged in that thought experiment then you can apply that to anything you know and, and that's and that's sort of what I endeavor to do with my writing but yeah I think people love simple narratives I think you know when we look about it in the kind of the context of the kind of climate crisis or how we should consume or how we should behave everyone's just looking for it like somebody just tell me and um and I, I often get this question this this has come up with in a number of some talks, it's like, what does a decolonial garden look like? I'm like, I can't tell you. Like, that's not my job to like write a guide for you to. You can grow this, but you can't grow that. It's not that at all. You know, it's about it's about engaging in more complicated conversations about how we, like, the politics of the spaces that we occupy. Like, what did it take for it to be this particular way, and what does it mean for us to engage in in an ongoing fashion? You know, and so so yeah, I think I think my my work is is to consistently just introduce complications and not necessarily give anyone solutions because there aren't any. Yeah, not to make people feel comfortable. No. But to understand, I think you mentioned context and mm, you know, yeah. complexity are very important in these discussions okay. um, and more discussions like this. And now it's your turn. We will take some questions. I think we have a roving mic. Um, so if you just put your hand up and we will find you with a microphone. Who would like to go first? I'll take the plunge. So um, thank you very much. That was really fascinating. Um, I'm a paleoclimate scientist. So what that means is I study climate, environmental change that's happened over the past thousands of years, millions of years. And one of the things when I talk to public audiences or students that I think unnerves people the most is the rate of change, um, of environmental change that we're undergoing right now. And I was interested in some of the themes that you picked up on 
because I don't know how to put that in the context of the rate of change that I'm seeing ahead of us, and which we're already seeing. Um, so I wondered if, perhaps to give um, my thoughts something tangible, we've, the world's been hotter before, the world's been colder before, plants have always grown, coming back to the food theme. But we've never had a rate of change since we've been undergoing agricultural practices, and I don't mean you know, commercialized agriculture of the 21st, 20th century. I'm talking about the shift from hunter-gatherer to having some control over the environment. So do you think that changes the narrative at all, the tensions between, I think you posed it as Western innovation and non-Western tradition? Um, and I think just some of the themes that, that you've spoken about. Um, I suppose most directly that would be a question for you, Claire, but actually it's interesting to hear about the rate of environmental change in the context of all of your works. Mm. Oh, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I, I, can I refer to myself in my last answer in that, like, I'm not, I'm not sure I have any of those, you know, I'm not sure how, how, to, how to address those things. I mean, if it, it, I would be lying if I didn't say it didn't keep me up at night, you know, and sometimes, um, especially like, the, the practice, the, the like journey of writing a book is very, you know, kind of engaged and very insular, and you spend a lot of time by yourself in like thought space and uh, and a lot of like emotional space. It's like I came shooting out the other side, thinking, oh my god, I've just wasted a year, and I could have been doing something more like important, you know. Um, and like the you know the world is changing so rapidly, and like people are living with the very real consequences of the climate crisis in their lives, and I'm just here like noodling on a laptop talking about my feelings. Um, so I mean, it's not like that. It's great. You should read it. Um, <laughs> but you know, there, there is um, that, that, that dialogue is very active in, in, within me, and then so. But I, I think the the reason why I think these conversations are really um, necessary and kind of and. And, and because there's a conflict there, isn't there? It's like, how? Why would you kind of spend time in conversations about about the past or about you know about history or the, about colonialism and imperialism and how that impacts the way in which we move through the world and the way we cultivate the land and the way its land is divvied up or whatever? Um, when you know the climate crisis is in our faces, right? But I do really believe that these conversations are necessary so we don't repeat the same mistakes that have basically created this landscape that is crumbling around us you know that like if we look at monocultural agriculture and we look at like environmental destruction in order to create make ways for for monoculture um that was pioneered in the in plant, the plantation economy right and the, the, there's and so i think that um the reason why i'm so i think the the conversations need to have they do have an eye to the rate of of change and is because if we move rapidly uh, without a sense of context, without a sense of like, uh, where, where did we go wrong before? Then we're just doomed to make the same mistakes. Like, I, yeah, like I said about the kind of rewilding conversation, I'm amazed at how how neo-colonial those conversations become, how idealistic, how nostalgic they become, and they don't um, account for who, who was pillaged, who was erased, who is not in that vision of the future. And um, and so, um, yeah, I, I don't know if that necessarily answers your question, but I do, I think all of those things are urgent. Um, and I do and I do think that that these kind of conversations have a space in, in, in the, the figuring out of what we do next. But I'm genuinely terrified by the rate of change. And like, you know, I, I isn't, it isn't something that is far from my mind while I tap away, <laughs> right, right stories you know i'm not sure if that's even remotely comforting i don't know if it's supposed to be actually we shouldn't be comfortable should we we should be uncomfortable and trying to figure out what we do next but the one thing i think we don't do next is just repeat our colonial mistakes i, I don't know how much whether i can can add that much to to what claire just said i kind of echo a lot of those um um those things that those thoughts that rattle through my brain every day i i mean i'm com i come from a country where the rate of of typhoons has increased incredibly fast over the last 10 years so it's very present in my mind and my family's reality so i that doesn't mean that what we do is isn't isn't necessary also so i think in a way i'm not really adding much to the to the answer but i i you know it is it is 
is something that we need to grapple with whilst also being aware that we might not even have the space to do that very soon. So. Mm -hmm. I would, I would just, I would. <laughs> This, yeah, I would just like to clarify, I didn't mean climate's changing so fast, that's the only thing we should be thinking about. I, I suppose I meant in the context of nostalgia and, right. um, you know, you talked about uh, seeing Western change as innovation, whereas non-Western change as being a, a return to ancient practices and tradition. So I wondered whether this rate of change that we've never been through before challenges um, any of that narrative, because it is so uncharted in, in the way forwards. What do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, I think this kind of idea of time becomes very interesting, and I feel like, um, you know, it's crossed my mind um, because we, we, you know, we make this one product, which is um, is made by, you know, um, a craftsperson, and he takes um, he takes a few weeks for to make. He hands build hand builds the pot, and then it has to he has to finish it by leveling it and then burnishing it. So it takes a long time, and I try and put that in my newsletter. So it, we say it takes six to eight weeks, and then we send it by sea because we don't send anything by air, and. Um, I feel in a way that that's something that I've been thinking about, which is, you know, that's just how long you've got to wait to get something, you know? And I feel like if we reevaluate this kind of Amazon phenomenon that has happened and like just the way we're on, like kind of constantly scrolling and, you know, it's just like, you can have something you order now. And it's just, you know, I, I just feel like that's the, that's something I think we need to be really aware of. You know, go back to the time where things were made for you and you waited six months for a piece of furniture and it's made by someone. And I feel like that's where, you know, I can resist. I can, that's my resistance as a, as a brand, as a maker, but then it's also resistance from the customer and together we can take on Amazon, you know. But I just I just feel that if 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 it's then the pressures on meat then also be shipping as quickly as Amazon, I think that's where the problem is because you're gonna choose a product that gets to you quicker than waiting for something that's made which is literally completely circular you know, a single fire, there's no glaze, you know, there's no waste because it gets crushed down, gets, you know, used back into the product. So I, I just feel that we've got to reevaluate our own needs. And I feel bad because it's always on the customer to decide and make choices of being like, how does this product come apart and how do I recycle it and where do I take it and what do I do? So I definitely think that that's unfair. Um, and I hope that more brands can have more clarity when they sell products as opposed to what do you do with the product at the end of its life? You know, that should be the first thing that is on the product page. Hello. Thank you. Each of you has been such a wonderful conversation. It's quite easy to feel hopeless, and I'm interested to ask each of you what gives you hope today. Mm. Mm. Um, I think for me, it's the people I work with. You know, just I think going to India and just having tea breaks and just hanging out and just gossiping. Um, I don't know. <laughs> it's like, I, I just feel like you, you forget that you've also got to have fun and that it's, you know, all that other stuff is important. You've got to just have joy. Um, and I think just, I feel like that gives me hope because it's like, there's just good people in the world, you know, um, and it'll be fine. It'll be okay. We'll figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I think small acts of care between people, I think, is on an everyday level is still something that we, you know, we can derive some 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 positivity from. And I think it's very easy to to get caught up in 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 the large narratives, the easy narratives as well. So I think uh, everyday life and and the space that you create for things like that and time is is something that I guess we we need to also derive our, our positivity from. 
I think my, my answer is going to be really obvious. It's going to be grow something. <laughs> grow something. It's miraculous. Yeah. It's like, yeah. it's ancestral. It is humble. It's earthy. It's divine. And it is miraculous. And like, you know, the, the, I don't I can't remember if I actually wrote it into the book, but it's a lo- like you could be incredibly lonely, but aloneness is impossible when you really understand how embedded we are in this like incredible web of thriving that you can participate in if you grow something. If you grow just some flowers and some vegetables and watch the life that comes to your doorstep. And mm-hmm. I don't know, I think participating in creating thriving, creating life is is the antidote to hopelessness. I think we are so bombarded with narratives of of destruction and sadness and there is just something really incredible about watching life arrive and and thriving and seeing yourself as part of that web is really really important it's really humanizing and it can it really take you out of um a sense of of that that kind of hyper individualness that I think can be incredibly lonely and really really devastating. And then I think and then you know yeah we end up feeling like the thing that we need to do is just figure out how perfectly to consume. It's like create life instead. <laughs> I think that's a pretty great place to leave it. Um, we could go on and on for hours and having this really brilliant discussion. But my Immense thanks to Claire Legaya and Spandana uh, for a really, really brilliant discussion today. My thanks to Howard House and Intelligence Square for putting this all together. Visit Harwood.org to find out more. Uh, Claire has a book out right now. <laughs> uh, so if you enjoyed what you heard, buy her book. The guy, do you have anything to sell? <laughs> no. Nothing to sell, I'm afraid. Sure, Spandana. Yeah, to put. to sell. <laughs> She's got a lot to sell. Um, So I'm just saying if you're a real ally, uh, you'll spend a lot of money this evening on on some really brilliant products. Um, But but you have a a book as well. He does have a book. He didn't bring a copy so I could show it, but you have a book. I do. It's not about me, but yeah. Can can you please share with the audience what your book Uh, is? It's called Africa is Not a Country, so should you find it. But yes, thank our panel for what was a really, really great If you'd like to support us in providing a home for passionate debate, deep discussion and answering the big questions that really matter, do consider becoming an Intelligence Squared Premium Podcast subscriber today. For just a small amount each month, you won't just be directly helping us continue to do what we do. You'll also be getting exclusive episodes each month, ad-free listening and early access to currently available via Apple Podcasts. You just need to hit the subscribe button. And if you're not an Apple user, don't worry, we're working on something for you too. Thanks for being a listener, supporting Intelligence Squared, and you're just one click away from getting some exclusive extras too.